Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. Today's episode is an interview hosted by the former president of the Phil, Ellen McKim, with Cody Keenan. Cody Keenan is a former speechwriter and political advisor to US President Barack Obama. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Fight for America. This interview was recorded this past March when Cody Keenan visited the society in Dublin. Well, a huge thank you to Cody for coming all the way here for this um, event and also for that beautiful speech. Um, I just wanted to kickstart kind of the interview on asking you what inspired you to start speech writing. It's something that you're clearly so passionate about and we're so excellent at it throughout your career and Obama was so known for his speeches um, and I wonder was there a speech growing up or a politician or something that inspired you to public service and to pursue a career um, in, in giving back I guess and trying to make the world a better place. Yeah I, there, there, was, there was not a politician who inspired me to get into politics. My parents did actually. Um, they, my dad was a Republican. He no longer is. Um, he was Republican. My mom's a Democrat uh, and they would just fight like cats and dogs at the dinner table and I found it fascinating. You know, it was it was like their version of a debate society. Um, and I, I just, you know, I, I went to college as a pre-med student and flamed out of chemistry right away. So I went into the easier science, political science. Um, and I just decided that that was going to be my way that I could help make things better, that I could change people's lives. And uh, so I moved to Washington um, right out of college, and I knew one person. We, we didn't have any family connections or anything like that in politics. Um, so I knew one person. He was a fraternity brother of mine at Northwestern University, go cats. Um, and he was doing Teach for America, so he was teaching in an underserved school. Um, so he was no use to help me get a job. So I just, I just hit the pavement for, it took me three months. Um, Cause I, you know, I, I went in there a cocky kid. I went to a good school. I'd seen every episode of the West Wing, you know, how hard can this be? Uh, it turns out everybody else in Washington had the same resume. Um, so finally I took an unpaid internship in Ted Kennedy's office, the youngest Kennedy brother. And that was my greatest education. He had, he had the best staff on the Hill. Even Republicans will tell you that. Um, the biggest staff on the Hill. They'd been around for decades. And he had passed countless laws that had changed people's lives in all sorts of ways. Um, and it was great. And, and I was just hooked. And I wanted to stay there forever. I never thought about speech writing. I was a policy aide for him by the time I left. What got me into speech writing was, and I don't have to kiss his butt anymore because he's not my boss anymore, it was Barack Obama. Um, while I was working for Ted Kennedy, the Democratic Party convention was in Boston, Massachusetts in 2004. And so we all took the week off work and went up. Um, and our reward for that was a floor pass for one night of the convention. And mine was for, I think it was Tuesday night. Um, and that's when this young state senator, like a state legislator, not even a senator yet, from Illinois, Barack Obama, took the stage and blew everybody's mind. Um, and it shows you what the power of a good speech is. He walked into the Fleet Center anonymous 19 minutes later he walked out a global megastar politically speaking um and i was just hooked this was a guy who was talking about politics the way i really wanted it to be and even even so i I loved my job it was great um but i still like tried to figure out when barack obama was speaking on the senate floor so i could watch you know something like that and um the a moment came where i had the opportunity to join his campaign in chicago my hometown of all places like who gets to work on a presidential campaign in their own hometown. And I jumped at it as a speechwriting intern because I'd written a few speeches for Ted Kennedy by the end. Um, and uh, I, I just kind of held on for 14 years uh, in my first speechwriting job. 
Yeah. And in terms of, I guess, that transition from an intern in Washington to one of the most like prolific speechwriters um, and, and obviously being chief speechwriter in the White House, um, I wonder for you in terms of that transition, um, how did you navigate that? Was there ever elements of like imposter syndrome? Um, and also how did you kind of come to climb the ranks to such a high degree um, over that kind of span of, of, of 14 to 16 years? Yeah, the total imposter syndrome. And I, I read about this in the book too, about how difficult it was to write for him. Um, you know, what helps is is colleagues, like I was talking about, uh, and mentors. And, you know, his first chief speech writer, John Favreau, knew him inside and out because they'd spent two years together in the Senate honing a worldview. Um, but it was, we were a different White House. Um, we were on the longest presidential campaign in history because Hillary Clinton stayed in all the way through the primaries. Um and that really just kind of forged us into a family. We were all working 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day in Chicago. Then we'd go out for a couple hours and have some beers and then come back and do it all over again the next morning. And we all lived together when we worked in the White House. Um, some of us married our colleagues. I, I met my wife at the White House. And I joke with the Obamas now that they've got dozens of little grandbabies running around the country um, from people who met either in Iowa working for them or in the White House working for them or in cabinet agencies. And the president always says, yeah, but nobody has named a kid Barack yet. <laughs> um, that's what gets you through. But I, I, I had imposter syndrome. I, I couldn't believe it when they picked me for chief speechwriter in the second term. Um, the first thought I had was, are you sure? And then I was like, everyone's going to figure out that I'm a fraud because I don't have John to help me out and edit me and whatnot. But, but uh, it worked out. Uh, and the president kept me on for four more years after the White House. But you get through that by working with extraordinary people and leaning on extraordinary people and asking for help and trusting a team around you. Yeah. Um, and I guess you touched on that in your address in terms of finding collaborators and finding people. Um, and in those 10 days of grace, I guess I wanted to ask you why you felt so passionately to write the book. And then I noticed that your daughter is also called Grace. So I wanted to ask you kind of what that word means to you now um, and why it's so important to you to hold on to, to Grace. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to write a memoir after I left the White House. A lot of people did that. And I just felt too young and it felt a little too self-serving with no offense to the memoirs that are really good. Um, I, and, but I, I helped the president with his for four years, and, and then um, I left to work on this. And it was just that those 10 days were kind of seared in my memory, but I didn't have the idea to turn it into a story until the Trump years because we were now living through the mirror opposite. Um, and it was actually on the second anniversary of day 10 in the book. You know, I, I noticed someone tweet out that it was the second anniversary of marriage equality, which made me think of that whole week. And, and Trump had done his, his usual thing that morning where he just like, says something stupid on Twitter and gets everybody fighting about it all day long. And that's basically what America did for four years. Um, and I decided to do a little tweet storm about those 10 days just to try to buck people's spirits. And uh, it took off in a way I wasn't expecting. And uh, Esquire magazine wrote it up. And I thought, you know, there's a book here. Um, and uh, so I finally, the pandemic finally gave me time to write it. Um, and then uh, Grace, our daughter, was born as I was writing it. So we named her first. Um, and then the book and, uh, my wife always jokes that I'm going to have to write a book named with the same name as our second kid, or we're going to have significant therapy bills. Um, what does it mean to me? I, I didn't know much about the concept, you know, I had always just used it in terms of the word graceful. And it was, it was after what those families did and, and Obama brought up the concept of grace. And I actually called this pastor right after that meeting in the Oval Office and, and said, explain this to me. Because he, he came up in the AME church, the African Methodist church, which is this, the same, one of the churches where uh, the massacre took place. And he explained it as the, the free and unmerited favor of God, basically, basically, you know, mercy and grace, even when we don't deserve it. 
um, it's kind of like taking that, it's turning the other cheek, taking that first step towards reconciliation and progress, even when you don't maybe feel like it. Um, and for our daughter, it's just, you know, we, we found out we were pregnant two weeks before New York City shut down for COVID. And, uh, you know, through all the tumult of, of COVID and the protests that summer and a contested election in the fall, um, it was a relatively and remarkably uh, complication-free pregnancy. She was just, and she kicked at the same time every night. She was like the, the little beacon of hope throughout the whole thing. So we, Chris and I looked at each other and we were just like, her name's Grace. That's really lovely. Um, and I suppose that kind of touching on hope and kind of having that kind of grace. Um, I remember when Obama came in 2011, I was only little, but I remember going in to see him, him speech. And I remember um, at the time Ireland was going through such like turmoil and such difficulty, similar to the pandemic, um, massive recession, economic crisis. Um, and I wonder for you, I know you want to speak a little bit about that speech and that trip um, and what that kind of meant to you to, to be, I guess, back in Ireland, back to your roots um, and, and write a speech for a country that was really, really struggling at that time. It was some of the best 10 hours of my life because um, that's because we were only here for 10 hours. Um, yeah, I, I, I begged to write that speech. You know, I was as a junior writer, I still wasn't quite on the foreign trip beat. Um, and uh, but I but I pushed really hard for it. I made sure that to crush there. There is no other interest group in the world that gets three speeches on the same day every single year. Um, the Irish do for St. Patrick's Day. So I made sure to crush the St. Patrick's Day remarks in 2009 and 2010 and 2011 uh, to get to do this trip. And as I was trying to figure out what to write, um, Samantha Power came into my office and she said, hey, listen, the, the one thing you should know um, is just how uh, morose the country is right now. Like there's this, this kind of like deep sadness there that I've never seen before. So what if Obama just went over and injected it with a shot of joy? I was like, great. Sounds great. That sounds a lot easier. Um, than anything else. So I, I, I wrote what I thought was a pretty fun speech. Um, we flew over, we went to money golf first, of course. And, you know, everybody likes to joke about that, but it's, it, he was, he was moved by it. People forget that, um, you know, because of the color of his skin, he was raised by his white mother and his white grandparents. You know, that, that side of his family is just as important to him as any other. Um, and he just kind of marveled that he said, you know, this is the town where my great, great, great grandfather grew up and walked around. And that's pretty cool. Um, he has not been to Obama Plaza, um, but I have, um, and it's cool. Um, but it was, it was great. And then we came back to college green. It, you know, it was the worst helicopter ride I've ever been on. It was just turbulent as heck, pouring down rain. And as soon as we landed, the clouds parted and the sun came out and we got to give this speech to 25,000 people. And I was like, this is the best day of my life. Um, then it got worse. We, we went back to the hotel and checked in and, and, um, people were, um, What's the pub? I think we were at the Marion. I can't remember. And the, what's the pub right across the street? Foley's maybe. Um, I think somebody had prepared a big party there, and I, I think the ambassador did. Uh, and there was food and a live band and, and uh, like female dancers and red, white, and blue getups. And I was like, this is going to be the best night of my life. And then we get an email saying you have to be in the motorcade in 30 minutes. We're leaving because of the volcano in Iceland. Uh, the Air Force said they can't fly through that, and if we don't leave now, we could be stuck here for a week. And I was like, well, don't threaten me with a good time. What's wrong with that? Um, but so we had to go. And, and so Ben Rhodes, who was the president's national security writer, uh, came by my room and he was like, dude, let's just go get a couple pints real quick. And we sprinted across the street. I think it was Foley's um, and just down two pints. And then and then we had to go, which was really, really sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I wonder in terms of like memories, I guess you probably have great times in terms of 
the the kind of community and family that you made along the way in terms of the White House um, and having all those memories of sharing beers and just travel and trips and things. And I wonder, is there any like big memory that stands out for you where I know those 10 days were really significant, but is there any kind of other memories that really stick with you from your time in the White House? Oh, tons, tons. Um, you know, on, on we call them foreign trips just as shorthand, but that was, that was a rare chance where you get to hang out with colleagues that you don't always get to hang out with. You know, we try to finish up our work and and then go explore a new city that, you know, I, I, I've now been to Asia um, 10 times, but never on my own, you know, because I can't afford to fly to Asia. Um, but I would go with the President of the United States. And then, you know, I'd, I'd, we'd kind of lean on each other, finish your work quickly, because we're going we're gonna to go out. We're going to go see Kuala Lumpur, you know. Uh, we're going to go out in Laos. Those, those were always fun, just getting to be with friends. Um, I don't know if you're leading me towards the Paris question, but we um, I pulled an infamous all-nighter in Paris, um, because the president had no edits to the speech I was writing for the next day, so I was off duty, and uh, we all, we, twelve of us, went out to dinner, which is great because we just don't get to spend time with each other like that much. And uh, but four of us ended up staying out all night long and coming back to the hotel at seven thirty in the morning as people were dressed and ready for the motorcade, and we got a little scolding, um, and somebody dimed us out to the president who came back and found us on Air Force One, pretty hungover, um, and said, "Oh, movable feast is back." Um, and that's how the Hemingway nickname stuck. It has nothing to do with my actual writing. And then we did suffer for it because our next stop was, uh, Nicholas Sarkozy's ratings were tanking. So he put on a reenactment of D-Day, uh, at Normandy. That was three hours long. Like the, pre- the there were thousands of people sitting there in these grandstands, the president's there, the Queens there, all these world leaders were there. And it was like 98 degrees. So Ben and I are just sitting under the bleachers. There's like bombs going off everywhere. We're just sweating. We're like, this is terrible. When is this going to end? The actual D-Day was shorter than this. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Sounds like quite the experience. Um, and could I ask you, just before we, I guess, open up to the q and I wanted to touch on, um, I guess, the Obama White House for so many was such, so many firsts and such a, like, a progressive time in, in U.S. politics. Um, and I wonder, seeing that transition in terms of Trump's White House and also in terms of speech writing, I think um, Obama was so well known for his thoughtful and well-spoken kind of rhetoric. And oftentimes Trump was a little bit more liberal with his words, to put it lightly. And I wonder for you looking at that, um, even now, how do you feel in terms of the legacy of Obama? And um, do you think that that will ever be recovered in terms of um, the U.S. legacy of? Yeah, yeah. It, it's going to take a while. But yeah, I mean, I, one of the to just answer the last part of your question first, one of the most pernicious aspects of Trump is the is how do you how does the rest of the world take America at its word from now on if we're going to elect someone like that again? Um, I worry about that. That just takes a long time. That credibility takes a long time to come back. Um but the one thing that should teach everybody is that, you know, progress is really fragile and you can't take it for granted. I mean, we just, you know, the Supreme Court with the Dobbs decision just overturned the right to choose in the United States, which is something that people just assumed was going to be around forever. Um, a couple of the justices want to go after marriage equality. You know, it, progress is something that has to be protected uh, and expanded upon. And you don't always get it all at once. And it is very frustrating. And sometimes it makes you want to just say, forget it. What's the point? But if you can get half of what you want, protect that, and then go get half of the next part, now you're 75% of the way there. Um, It just takes work. It takes time. It takes constant struggle and persistence and faith. And, you know, President Obama, when I was talking with him the morning after the election, as we were trying to figure out what what he should say, he said, you know, people always kind of, people in Washington always kind of poke fun at me for being the hope guy. But you don't need hope when things are going well. You need hope when things are at their darkest. That's when you need hope. And it's subversive. Uh, 
And, you know, you, you, you can almost wield it like a weapon when you need to the most. When things are the darkest, that's when you need to be most hopeful and inspire other people to be hopeful too. Absolutely. And again, thank you so much for, for that, um, I guess, speech and address. Um, and I guess I want to open up to everyone here to ask any questions they want to ask Cody Keenan. I'm sure there will be tons from the floor. Um, but does anyone have anything they would like to ask? Yeah, Jonathan. Speak like a human. Seriously, there there are so many politicians who don't, who get trapped in hackneyed phrases that they feel like poll test well, or um, you know, I, I I always poked fun at not to be not to poke fun at people now, but I always poked fun at Hillary Clinton for saying over and over again, the middle class is the middle of my priorities. Well, I get the repetition of middle, fine, but shouldn't it be like one of your highest priorities? Let's think through this before we say it. You know, and Joe Biden's always talking about building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. I know what that means, but like, does anybody actually really say that? You know, I wish this economy worked from the bottom up and the middle out. Like, talk like a human. Be colloquial. There's no shame in it. You know, my students, my students, you can always tell when they're trying to impress me in the first couple of weeks of class because they're, they're writing too lofty for the assignment. You know, they're all trying to sound Kennedy-esque. And most speeches don't lend themselves to that. Some do, eulogies, commencements, inaugural addresses, but most of Obama's best speeches was when he was just being colloquial um, and speaking to people where they are. You know, my, my, my rule on a big policy speech with my speechwriters was, you know, if they were too wonky, I'd give it back and say, go rewrite this as if you're explaining it to your best friend in a bar. Then you know it's ready. Um, you know, you don't need to, to beat your head over the audience with a bunch of buzzwords and phrases and lingo that they don't know. Um, speak like a human. Really, that's rule number one. Thank you so much. Um, does anyone else have any other? Abby, yeah. Yeah, great question. Thank you for reading. Um, he taught me a couple lessons through jazz. He, uh, I went in, I went in with another speechwriter to talk to him. He. So he was scheduled to give a speech on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech from the exact same place. And that's just being, talk about being set up to fail, you know? Like, hey, we'd like you to honor the greatest speech in history by going back to the exact same moment and speaking. It's like, no, what? Um, so I, I, I went in to, to try to shake some ideas loose from what should we talk about. And he was like, look, man, I don't want to give this speech, like for that exact reason. Um, so I'll think about it. But in the meantime, you go start writing you know, with no problem. You go start writing and uh, read James Baldwin if you're stuck and listen to John Coltrane if you're not. And then he left to play golf. And I was like, what does that mean? Um, but it was, it, was, it was pretty sage advice because James Baldwin has this, this way of writing that is like a hot knife through butter. You know, he reminds you that there are such concepts as right and wrong. And it's okay to, to write and speak that way. Um, and then Coltrane is kind of this, I was never a jazz guy. Coltrane is kind of this freeform jazz that sort of almost made my fingers feel like they knew what they were doing on the keyboard. Um, the other one is he told me to listen to Miles Davis um, because w what was great about Miles Davis is the, it was the notes that he doesn't play. It's the spaces between. Um, and he said that for a particularly dense speech. He said, you know, th this needs some breath in it, some emotional moments, some, some levity, some laughter, some spaces. So go listen to Miles Davis and find me some silences. Um, as for what I really listened to when I was writing, it totally depended on the tone of the speech and the mindset I was trying to get in. Like when 
you know, when the economic crisis was at its worst, I listened to a lot of Bruce Springsteen, you know, hard work in factory towns trying to come back. Um, if it was a really complicated speech where I, I couldn't have words in my head as I was trying to come up with them, I'd listen to some movie soundtracks. Um, the soundtrack to The Social Network is excellent for writing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Do we have any other questions from the audience? Yeah, it's not your own voice. It is entirely that other person's voice. So if you're having a conflict with that, you're probably not cut out to be a speechwriter. Um, now, that happens to every speechwriter at first, but you need to fully inhabit the person. You need to understand not just what they want to say, but why they want to say it. You need to know stories from their life that, that have influenced their thinking. Um, you, you are that person as you're writing. So it was actually more difficult for me to write my book because I was trying for the first time in 14 years to write in my own voice. And figure out what that was again because it had just it had just merged with his in a way that was difficult to break and my editor actually asked me to go back at the end of the book and rewrite chapters one and two um because she said over the course of this manuscript you've you've broken free from obama's voice but the first couple chapters still kind of sound like him so i need you to go back and write those as you um but yeah and then all that only comes with spending time with the person you're writing for it's just the most important thing in, in that collaborative relationship Yeah, that's the hardest part. Um, and one thing I left out earlier is one of the reasons why he didn't want to give a eulogy in 2015 is we had basically pushed aside our second term agenda in 2013 to do, try to do something about guns, background checks, after 20 little children were murdered in their classroom. Um, and Republicans in the Senate wouldn't even allow a vote on it. They just knocked it down with the parents of the kids watching from the gallery. And that was as cynical and dark as I've ever seen the president get. You know, he came back in and I know he was just venting, but but right after he spoke in the Rose Garden that day, surrounded by the parents of those kids, he said, you know, the next time this happens, I don't want to speak. What am I going to say? You know, we're just we've just decided as a country we're not going to do anything about this anymore. Um, and that that's one of the reasons why he didn't want to speak at Charleston. But you you have to give people something to grasp onto. And the way we approached eulogies was the first half is um how we'd want to remember these people. What are the important things out of their lives? If you can make someone laugh, if you can make an audience laugh at a eulogy, you're a great speechwriter. And you should try. You know, like it, it, the way these people left is sad, but the way they lived their life was not sad. Um, and you need to rem remind people of that. And then we would, we would take one of those lessons and turn that into kind of a broader sermon on what are our responsibilities now that these people are gone. And that was different for every shooting um both for for tucson for newtown for charleston for all the others and uh you know if you can if you can if you can make people laugh and think and inspire them at a eulogy uh in addition to the crying which comes on its own then you've done your best yeah absolutely let me take one way yep <laughs> how do you balance what sorry 
my advice is do it. Just do it. Jump in. Go. Um, it, it's just, it's so worth it. It really is. Even through the frustration. You know, like we didn't get everything done that we wanted to. We didn't even get half done what we wanted to. And a lot of it is just being stymied by the system. You know, some of it was our own mistakes. But, um, you know, we have this ridiculous rule in the Senate where you need 60 votes to, to pass anything instead of 50. And that blocked us from doing a lot of important stuff. Um, you know, like when, when the background checks legislation was in there, there, we had 55 votes. You know, that should be enough to pass something, but you need 60. Um, so it can be tremendously frustrating. And I, another angle of this is, you know, even if, if from the left, we would get a lot of criticism that we didn't do it all, right? That we didn't go, that we didn't institute a single payer universal healthcare system. Or um, I don't know the other, remember what all the other complaints are. There are a lot, but we didn't have 60 votes. That's the reality of it. We had 59 for, for a single payer system. And there's nothing you can do about that. Um, you know, short of like finding photos of that senator in an illicit tryst and then threatening to post them on the internet, which we should have done. Um, I'm not saying anything about a certain senator. I don't know. Um, but it, you, I don't see a conflict between idealism and realism. Realism is understanding the world as it is with your eyes wide open. And idealism is fighting for the world as it should be anyway. You know, and, and too often I think people let the realism, um, they let it make them surrender. You know, if I'm not going to get everything I want right now, then why am I, why go vote? Um, well, I'll tell you why in, in 2014, most of our voters didn't show up to vote for midterm elections. So we lost the United States Senate to Republicans. And then when Barack Obama got to put up his third Supreme court nominee, um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader decided for the first time in American history we're not going to give a uh, nominee a vote. We're just not going to do it. And there's nothing we could do about that. No amount of public pressure is going to get Mitch McConnell, no, no number of soaring speeches is going to get Mitch McConnell to change his uh, mind because that was what was best for him and his party politically. And then as soon as Trump won, they rushed through three nominees, which changed the balance of the court for 30 years, which led to the Dobbs decision, all because we didn't get enough voters in 2014. And I, I know it drives people nuts to hear you need to vote in every election. It drives people crazy, but it's also true, you know? And I, I've never figured out a clever rhetorical way around that um, because there are a lot of people who do vote in every election and they say, I don't, I'm not seeing what I want. It takes a long time. That's democracy and it's unsatisfying. Like it sounds like I'm making an excuse for it. I don't know what I want either. There's a lot of things that I want. Um, but I, I guess my advice to somebody who does get really down about it and cynical about it is pick one issue. And that's hard for Democrats because we care about everything. But pick one issue and make that your issue. Be a single voter, single-minded voter on that issue and just keep voting and keep pushing until you do get what you want. Um, and you might not. But I promise you when, when the day comes that you do, the joy that comes on that day is so much better than just giving up because this way you'll never get hurt you know those 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 few there are really big victories in politics are really rare they don't you don't get many marriage equality was one of them killing bin laden was one of them but that's different that's not policy um getting health care passed was one of them you know you don't get many but it's it's what you do on all the days in between you know if, if you've just moved the ball forward a couple inches 
you can go to sleep happy because all those inches eventually add up to a touchdown. And it just takes time. You know, we were in the White House for 2,922 days. And if you can, if you can, if you can go home thinking you, you pushed that boulder just a little bit up the hill that day, that's a good feeling. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And if we're going to end on one last one um, to lighten the mood a little bit before we move on, uh, could I ask, if you're on a desert island and you can only bring one book, one movie, and one song with you, what would you bring? <laughs> wow. Um, God, that's such a good question. One one book. Okay. How do I, besides mine? Um, <laughs> Which you should all buy. <laughs> yeah. Man, I don't know. Um one book for the rest of my life. I'm 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 missing the boat here in a big way. It it might be the biography, one of the biographies of Bobby Kennedy. I don't know. It's the first thing that comes to mind. Um one song. There's a 10-minute live version of uh so I'm cheating here where it's it's a it's a mix of Bad 40 and Where the Streets Have No Name by U2. So that way I'm getting three songs in one. Um, I thought you were going to say the 10 minute version of All Too Well by Taylor Swift there. No, my wife would take that one. Um, and then one movie. What's my favorite movie? I don't know if I've ever had one. Uh, uh, Braveheart, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I should be prepared for this question. Why can't I think of my favorite things? <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much for coming. And that was such an inspiring thought. And really, I think everyone will take something away from that. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having um, me. And a big thank round of applause for Katie Heenan. That was our conversation with Cody Keeney. If you enjoy the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.